Welcome to Textile Update, the podcast where we can share our passion for textiles, fibers, and yarns. This is Gwendolyn Hustvedt. This is the first of three episodes that focus specifically on dyeing. Not dyeing. Dyeing with dyes. That kind of dyeing. Let me tell you, this is one of my favorite topics to teach about. I haven't taken entire semester-long courses in dyeing, dye chemistry or dye methods, uh, 18th and 19th century printing techniques just for a semester. So it is pretty hard to cram so much love into a few episodes. However, I think it might be best to save quite a lot of it for a more in-depth discussion later and make sure I just hit the high points so that you feel really confident that you're making smart decisions when you're thinking about dying or understanding well, what is it that you're looking at? So I really want to approach this topic from a very functional perspective, right? You're a person who may be receiving products or ordering products that are dyed or printed. What do you need to know? So that's where where I'm going to go, even though I could go a lot deeper. But as always, I'm going to start with some of the history right? Uh, so uh, natural colorants are have been historically used for millennia. Human beings have been using uh, uh, natural colorants uh, until synthetic colorants were invented. And then we began to use synthetic colorants. And synthetic colorants were invented in the 1850s, and they were invented, uh, it, you know, at the same time as we were beginning to invent all sorts of other chemicals. And uh, so synthetic dyes, in some cases, synthetic dyes are actually actually us just having solved the secret to what is it in the plant that's actually creating the color and then can we synthesize that in the lab right so uh, indigo leaves could be used to make uh, this um, dye material but we have to have vast uh, planted fields full of indigo to produce enough of the dye to make enough products for everyone who wants them Uh, this requires uh, land that could be used for food production requires labor that could be used to be produced producing food or doing something else useful, if we can set up a facility that can process the waste products from the uh, coal or petroleum industry to produce synthesized indigo, then why uh, use up all the farmland that way, right? So that was the thought behind synthetic colorants. And then, of course, there's all the fun of thinking, hmm, could I actually design a chemical that has a certain color, a color that never occurred in nature, uh, but uh, or maybe only occurred in nature in butterflies, for example, but that we could actually find a way to synthesize. So natural colorants typically come from plants, come from insects, right? So uh, cochineal is actually comes from a, a type of lice um, and uh, uh, produces this uh, very vivid red um, uh, lac insect. So that's where the word lacquer comes from. Uh, it can be can come from shellfish, right? Uh, so certain types of uh, shellfish, or even from minerals. So all of the ancient old master oil paintings and other things were using. Uh, 
ground up minerals as uh, naturally occurring colorants. And there are some really great books on this subject. Uh, and it, this is a whole area that's really worth investigating. A lot of people, when they get into dyeing, um, they discover that uh, there's something fun about the processing part of the of using the natural colorants, sort of the unpredictability of it, kind of the kitchen chemistry feel of it, whereas the synthetic colorants just produce the same color every time, and sometimes the colors can feel, I don't know, kind of um, uh, sterile. And so uh, I understand why a lot of people really enjoy using natural colorants. I like to use synthetic colorants in my silk painting um, because I get a very repeatable performance so I can uh, have a design idea and practice it over and over and, and I can be learning about the materials I'm using. I do watercolor painting and there are synthetic colorants in watercolor painting. Some of the most gorgeous watercolors these days uh, come from uh, pigments that have been synthesized in a laboratory and I really enjoy those as well. Uh, overall, synthetic colorants are more level. They bond more directly with the, with the dyes, uh, with the fibers, which means we don't have to use a lot of additional auxiliary chemicals. This is something they don't really talk about when they talk about natural dyes. All of the additional materials are other chemicals, salt, uh, acids, um, uh, heavy metals that might need to be used to make the, the small part of the plant that was actually had any kind of color in it bond with the fabric. And uh, so um, it's nice to have that sort of repeatable, uh, we call it level, uniform dyeing appearance. And then the other thing that's great is that uh, colorants that bond well with the fabric aren't going to wash away. We call this fastness. They've bonded fast to the fabric. And that means in the long term less pollution because the dye isn't washing away every time we launder with it. In fact, low-impact dyes can be uh, bonded to the fabric without using any heat, so the carbon footprint is much lower than dyes that require a lot of heat. They can be uh, attached to the fabric without any additional auxiliary chemicals, right? And so low-impact fabric, we can make the, the dye liquor, we can calibrate it precisely for the weight of the fiber being used, and when we're finished, the wastewater runs perfectly clear because we did a good job with the chemistry on that. So there are cases where a synthetic colorant that's been properly calibrated uh, produces less pollution than any natural, uh, naturally sourced uh, dye material that still needs a lot of help to do the job. And last but not least, synthetic colorants are less expensive because we didn't have to pay for the land and the agriculture and the labor. And uh, so uh, pound for pound, uh, it costs less. All of those are reasons why synthetic colorants have won out. Have we invented some very dangerous synthetic colorants? Why, yes, we have. Uh, but uh, there's whole categories of dyes that, that aren't used anymore um, because of uh, the fact that uh, long term it turns out they were problematic cancer. But uh, uh, there are others that have turned out to be really wonderful and give us the bright, brightly colored and beautiful and artistic world we know today. Another way that we can split up colorants is to think about uh, whether they're dyes or pigments. Uh, simply put, a dye are small, very soluble uh, particles, molecules that um, go into solution in water uh, versus pigments that are large and insoluble, so ground up rocks. Um, 
the dyes have a strong affinity for the fiber, which means that they actually form a dye fiber bond. It's a chemical bond of some type. Now, some bonds are better than others. We'll talk about this in a minute. Um, and uh, pigments, on the other hand, have no affinity. They're just a little tiny rock. And so we end up basically gluing them on, which means they're going to be less uh, durable, less fast. They will um, rub off. Uh, typically, we use dyes in dyeing and we use pigments in printing. But of course, we can use dyes in printing and we can dye with pigments, right? So, so it's not an exact one-to-one -one match, but typically um, dyes are, are, you know, the, the, the colorants that we use mostly in dyeing are dyes and the colorants we use uh, in printing are pigments, uh, certainly um, uh, printing of uh of um, artistic material, printing textiles, we can use pigments as well. Now, because dyes form a bond with the fiber, the dyes are fiber specific. So the dyes that are attracted to cellulose are not the same dyes as are attracted to synthetic fibers and are willing to form a bond with the fiber. Um, the chromophore, that's the name of the molecule that creates the color, so the dye is, is a chromophore. The chromophore has a specific shape, right? The molecules, the carbons, the, the hydrogens, the nitrogens, right? They're, they have a specific shape. And that means that they want to bond with a specific set of molecules uh, and elements that are sticking out of the surface of a polymer in a certain way. And so uh, there are some dyes that really are just born to be with a certain fiber. Cellulose dyes, we have five main categories of dyes that work with cellulose dyes. Uh, the azoic dyes include those dyes. Um, it, most of the band dyes are in the azoic category. Uh, so I'm not really going to get into them much further except to say that uh, with azoic dyes, you, you just want to double check that you're not getting an, an, a dye that's been banned in, in some part of the world uh, because of concerns it causes cancer. Sulfur dyes have sulfur in them. Um, and uh, that's great, especially if it's going to form a sulfur bond with, uh, with the fabric. It's a very sturdy bond. Uh, sulfur dyes, black dyes are uh, very often sulfur dyes. Um, so we can get these really nice deep black chromophores. Uh, so not black pigments, not just ground up coal, uh, not just ground up carbon, but actually a, a chromophore, a, a, a dye that is black. Sulfur dyes, uh, because they have the sulfur in them, they do create a problem with fabrics called sulfur tendering, which I'll talk about in a later episode, uh, which is why if you've ever seen a detergent that is designed specifically to use with your black uh, textiles, that's because they're designed to neutralize this tendency in the sulfur dyes and help them uh, remain well bonded to the fabric. So if you love your black garments, if you're a goth, uh, for example, um, then it's worth investing in that special detergent just for black products. It will help them stay blacker longer. Uh, that dyes are a category of dyes that use oxidation and reduction as part of the dye process. Indigo is an example of a VAT dye. So we um, reduce the dye into its reduced state and that kind of um, sets it up. It's ready to do chemistry when it's been reduced. So an electron's been removed. And uh, so the VAT dyes, we have to be very careful about their exposure to oxygen. As soon as they oxidize, then they form their permanent bond. 
So indigo is a vat dye and the indigo pot will form a surface on it, kind of a scum or a skin. And that skin will be blue, indigo blue. But if you peel the skin away and actually look down into the vat, the reduced form of the uh, indigo is uh, kind of a milky opalescent green white. We call that leuco actually, like leucocytes for white. So if you dip a textile into an indigo vat, you break the skin or the surface with the spoon and then um, plunge the, in, uh, the textile down into it, the moment that you pull it out, it actually doesn't look blue yet. It turns blue as it's exposed to air. Uh, so this brings up something that really annoys me a lot. Denim manufacturers act like distressed denim or faded denim is a fashion trend. It's not a fashion trend. It's actually their manufacturing decision. So denim is made by um, dyeing warp yarns right before they're woven. And so the, because it, the filling yarns are white, the warp yarns are dyed. And uh, to really get something a nice dark even uh, indigo blue to have the dye penetrate all the way through the fiber and really bond completely, you should be taking your time. Places that do really good indigo dyeing historically may have left the textile in there for an hour and then pulled it out and let it be exposed to oxygen for 24 hours and then plunged it back into the vat. Uh, in West Africa, places where they do indigo dyeing, uh, the vats are actually underground, um, kind of an underground cavern with a little tiny hole up at the top and the um, indigo is reduced using a fermentation process. So it's all a bit stinky. And you take the wooden lid off the top of this hole in the ground and use a big long stick to shove the textiles down in there. And then you fish them out after a while and hang them uh, over trees and on lines and let them oxidize thoroughly and completely. So to do a good job with dyeing denim, you need to take your time. But time is money. Time isn't the, is the one thing that these denim producers don't want to spend. They want to get to market quickly. So they dye the product in a half-dyed uh, half method uh, where there's plenty of indigo on the surface that isn't actually bonded to any fibers. It's just laying there. And the first time that it's laundered, that indigo just washes away, leaving the fabric looking faded. Where did that all that indigo go, right? It went into the laundry somewhere. It went out into the water as wastewater, whereas if, uh, as pollution, basically, whereas if it had been bonded thoroughly and completely and carefully, it would have never ended up as pollution and the denim would have remained a nice, deep, dark indigo color. Uh, so they're doing a, a half, a half dyed method and they're telling you that it's a fashion choice, but come on what's fashionable for 30 years, right? There's, there's a reason behind it. The very low impact dyes that are very popular are called reactive dyes and that gives you a clue. They react very strongly with the cellulose polymers and bond well. So reactive dyes are a great choice if you're dyeing and really want to reduce the amount of pollution that you're producing and you want to make sure that the dye stays the same color for a long time. Reactive dyes are your choice. Direct dyes don't use the same covalent bonds with the fibers. Uh, direct dyes are very large chromophores. It's kind of like they're depending on gravity to stay attracted to the fiber. So the polymers are kind of like, well, yeah, we like having you around. You're kind of big, right? Um, and uh, so, you know, you can stay. You're 
you know, will bond with you. Van der Waals bonds, uh, for example. Van der Waal forces, right? Not even a bond, really. Um, yeah, they're not as color fast. We're not a big fan of direct dyes. Now, protein and nylon dyes both can be dyed with reactive dyes, but acid dyes are really the best for those. Uh, hydrophobic fibers will use a hydrophobic dye. The dispersed dye is a hydrophobic dye. These need to be dyed at higher temperatures, uh, so we'll typically use kind of a pressure cooker setup with them. And then, of course, the dye that was invented by Perkins in 1850 uh, was a beautiful, brilliant purple in the test tube. When he dipped the silk in, he was kind of disappointed, right? It ended up a dusky color that, that ended up being called mauve, even though in the test tube it was brilliant, bright, fluorescent purple. Well, it turns out that that dye was a basic dye that was waiting for us to invent the fiber, the acrylic fiber that really goes with that uh, particular dye. So the basic dyes produce colors we had never actually seen before and, uh, you know, colors that uh, don't occur in nature and uh, opened up a whole new world of color. And some of these uh, dyes are used in, uh, reused in um, paints for the first time and really usher, ushered in a new uh, era of painting. I can imagine how exciting it was uh, when artists were realizing that literally they could depict the world in a different way, um, paint things that uh, they saw uh, better, but then also things that we never had even seen, uh, like uh, fluorescent colors. So um, here's a really interesting thing to try and explain to people. The chromophores create a color by um, reflecting the wavelengths of light into our eyes. And this depends on the shape of the chromophore. There is not, in fact, a chromophore that can produce every possible, mathematically possible, shade of color. So uh, there was a time when people were really into color theory that was based on physics, right? Uh, and ironically, some of this color theory happened just before we started discovering these new synthetic chromophores. And I think people imagined that time as they were coming up with color theory that we would eventually just somehow be able to synthesize chromophores that produced every single color that could possibly exist. But it turns out we haven't been able to do that. There's just some colors missing. In some cases, we have two or three chromophores that make a color that our eyes can't tell apart, even though a more sensitive instrument, a detection instrument, can tell them apart. And in other cases, there are places where we think there should be a color there, but for whatever reason, they're just the chemical that makes that particular reflection of light just doesn't exist. So we can see things in, in life, in film, uh, using light, uh, using uh, theories related to color that um, we don't actually have the dye that will bond to the fiber that is the product that we're trying to make. We can say, I want something that looks like that butterfly, and we can mood board that all we want. But if the chromophore that bonds to cellulose doesn't exist, then we're just not going to have that color. And uh, there may be colors that we can produce in basic dyes that will bond to acrylic that we can't produce uh, in reactive dyes that will bond to protein, nylon, or uh, cellulose fibers. And that limits what we can do. So sometimes designers are choosing fibers 
based on what colors they can get for them, not based on any other properties. But who are we to say that's wrong? Color is an incredibly important part of our experience of textiles, of the world around us. And uh, so it's worth it to, at some point to explore, well, what are the colors available for this particular fiber in this particular um, dye stuff? And then, and then what can I do with it? Uh, and what will I do when I realize that I can never have the particular color that I want? Thank you.